when I was diagnosed um, and we had our plan and um, all my referrals were organised, as I was walking out the door, Chantelle said to me, you're not going to die from this. I don't know if they're allowed to say that, (laughs) but um, that was enough for me. That was, I was sort of like, okay, well, right, we've got to, we've got to do all, all these things. I've got to have this surgery. I'll have this treatment, but I won't be dead. So it's all worth it. So all of a sudden, what was so unknown after all of those biopsies and tests and waiting and needles, I knew that whatever was about to come next, there was a full stop. I'm Alison Rice and welcome to Offline, a series of honest conversations with the people behind our favourite Instagram accounts and the teachers who help us on our way. Together we get real about life on the other side of the filter and explore the often confronting concept of true self. These are raw, imperfect conversations grounded in reality. You can find more episodes at offlinethepodcast.com or by subscribing wherever you like to listen. And if you fancy seeing behind the scenes, because let's be honest, who doesn't? Follow Offline the Podcast on Instagram. Just one more thing. If Offline helps you, please consider helping me fund these honest conversations. Visit offlinethepodcast.com forward slash donate. I'm very honoured to introduce you to Terrell Brewer or Tez, as she's known to those closest to her. She lives in Melbourne with her boyfriend and works at one of the big banks as a sponsorship manager. She's the eldest of four girls, and she's particularly close to her sister Lyndall. The three of us met at an offline women's circle, and after that night, I couldn't get Terrell or her story off my mind. The bravery and honesty she brought to the circle that night got me thinking about the deeper role offline could play when it comes to both education and prevention. What might we face? Who has already survived it? And would they be willing to share what they've learned? Offline started as honest conversations with the women behind the Instagram accounts. Their stories and their humility not only moved us, but opened us up to a part of ourselves we weren't all that familiar with, our true selves. In came the teachers and the healers to help us navigate this new spiritual terrain. And now, it's time to hear from those closest to us. The people in our lives who don't necessarily have a social media presence or a stage to stand on, but they teach us anyway. The people we call, the people we text, and the ones we show up for every single day. Terrell's story and the ones I hope will follow stand for survival. What does it mean to sit in true self when life serves us a set of circumstances and experiences we didn't see coming and we don't feel prepared for? My hope is that through listening, we learn. Terrell Brewer is a 33-year-old stage 4 metastatic breast cancer survivor. This is her story. In 2018, uh, BCNA, so Breast Cancer Network Australia, was holding the field of women through their partnership with um, the Melbourne Football Club. So every four years they um, 
gather women on the MCG in the shape of the pink lady um, and the amount of people on the field are representative of the amount of people each year who will be touched by breast cancer. Um, and they were doing some activity around the MCG, so like a family zone, which is how we became involved at NAB because of our work through Auskick. So I didn't know anyone with breast cancer, anyone who knew anyone who had breast cancer. I was completely um, oblivious to obviously, you know, awareness of, of what it was um, but didn't really have an understanding of what field of women meant, how many people were diagnosed, what BCNA's role was. So um, that was a really informative process to go through in working with them. I learnt about the different kinds of breast cancer, how aggressive some forms are, the role of BCNA in that they educate um, women about their options once they've been diagnosed and provide support kits um, and work in conjunction with um, the other breast cancer charities as well, which I found really interesting. Um, but I, before that, I had no clue about anything really and about how devastating it can be. And the woman that I was dealing with uh, at BCNA at the time had her best friend had just been diagnosed and she just lost her sister-in-law to breast cancer. And uh, in those meetings that I had with her where she was explaining that, I just thought, felt really felt for her. I just thought how devastating it must be and would walk through their facilities and see volunteers on the phone talking to women with breast cancer or trying to drum up, you know, support, whether it be through fundraising or events. Um, so, And because I've largely worked in commercial organisations, I hadn't really had much involvement with charities either, so I was really touched by how lean it is um, and I felt really good to be able to do something that for us as a big organisation um, from, you know, a support point of view was pretty minimal but it made a huge difference to BCNA and obviously the women that they support. So, um, you know, we just did a little fun zone and there was signage and, you know, nothing nothing too extravagant but through that activity they invited me to the lunch that they were holding at the MCG and to participate on the field. So got my pink poncho and um, a colleague of mine came with me because I sort of felt like well, I can't really do this alone and I didn't really know what I was going to feel after, you know, understanding how emotional um, it could be just from dealing with the people that I'd worked with at BCNA. I didn't want to go it alone and sort of stand on the field. So um, a colleague came with me and we we went out there and, yeah, it was really it was really quite intense and everyone had their ponchos on and there was this feeling of solidarity which was which was great and familiar but um, there were also people walking around with photo frames that, you know, that were obviously old photos of um, people who had passed away. There were a lot of um, women that, um, you know, had short hair or um, quite clearly had been through it themselves and were quite overcome with emotion um, there were photos scrolling on the big screen of, you know, people that had been lost or um, mothers with, you know, bald heads with young children. So it was, it was really emotionally, um, emotionally intense. Um, but I kind of, I felt like a bit of an imposter standing there um, 
with Ellie, I, I just, you know, I've, I've felt for the people around me and thought um, naively me standing there in my pink outfit um, with my poncho on was doing my bit for breast cancer, but it probably made me realise that, it, you know, it affects people so much more deeply and so many people. I've been on the MCG so many times um, and n- never has it been full of people with such stories and yeah I I did feel like a bit of an imposter at that stage because I was there because we'd you know helped out with a family fun zone out out the front and it's kind of paled in in comparison to the experiences that everyone around me had had and then even going into the event there were um people sharing stories um on the panel Jacinta Franklin spoke about her grandmother uh yeah it was it was a really um, emotional day and um, I suppose I felt afterwards gave myself a bit of a pat on the back for, you know, doing what I could to to help an organisation like that and then I thought that was it. That I thought that'll be done, you know, that happens every four years so maybe when it comes around again um, we might support them but uh, at that point in time I thought I wasn't going to ever have anything to do with BCNA again. The universe has your back. We hear that a lot, but in times like this, it really does become supreme truth. As you'll soon hear, Terrell's role in corporate sponsorship, the bank's decision to support BCNA, her attendance on the day and the meetings she sat through in the lead-up, all became this kind of remarkable preparation pack for what was to come. I think I was being prepared for what was about to happen next um there have been a few moments along my journey where looking back it makes a little bit more sense because I'd been through that education process um with BCNA when they explained what they did um when I was diagnosed I understood all the terms I understood when I saw that at one appointment the breast care nurse came out to get me rather than the surgeon there were a few points along the way because I had that understanding from working with BCNA that I knew what was what was about to happen. Um, and it really prepared me. I think that really shaped how I dealt with things along the way because I knew what was about to happen um, because I had been educated. So it's really interesting to look back now and I felt like an imposter standing there with my pink poncho on, but in actual fact, I probably at that time had cancer. I've told this story a lot and I still, weirdly enough, <laughs> feel uncomfortable about saying nipple discharge throughout like the whole thing. Um, so for me, it wasn't a lump, it was nipple discharge. So I was... Um, in Sydney for work. Um, I was there for the week. Um, I was staying near the beach, I remember. I was going to the gym. I was really making sure that, um, you know, whilst it was a work trip, I was making sure I was a bit of self-care. And I'd been to the gym and I'd gone out for breakfast. I came back to the hotel to get ready for the day and got got changed to get in the shower and noticed something on the end um, of my nipple and I just thought I've obviously eaten something and it's fallen in my bra or, you know, it's a bit of fluff and went to brush it off and it didn't come off. 
So I got in the shower and went to wash it off. And as I pushed on my breast, um, like a sort of blood-coloured um, fluid came out of, of my nipple. And that was a really odd moment. It didn't hurt. I probably at the time was the fittest that I've ever been um, and was looking after myself. Um, so I, I didn't really think anything of it. I, I It was odd because of, I haven't breastfed. You know, my nipples weren't made for anything really at that point in time. So I just sort of washed it away and didn't think anything of it and um, got to work and then I think probably an hour or two into my day I called my sister um, and I called my boyfriend and said look this has happened Um, I feel fine I feel really good actually I don't know if it's a thing but if it is a thing I feel like I should be telling you now rather than down the track Um, I was there for another four days. I said, I'm not going to go to the doctor here. I just feel like that's going to be complicated. I'll be home on Thursday. I'll go to the GP. So I, and I felt fine. And the symptoms continued throughout that trip. Um, I flew back to Melbourne and went straight to the GP to the point where I had my wheelie case with me. Um, And it, which, my GP, who is incredible, found it uh, very amusing that I sort of straight off the plane and he's like, oh, what have you done now? Um, and, yeah, in sitting down with him, showed him my symptoms. Um, we went through family history, of which I have no family history of breast cancer. Uh, and he said, look, we have to test it. I think it's four ways. So um, there's a blood test, a mammogram, um, an ultrasound, um, and then the physical test, and they tested the um, the discharge as well. And he said, but based on what we know, you're 32, you're fit and healthy, no family history, 3% chance based on this, you know, chart of calculations. So I said, okay, that's 3% pretty good. I feel great um, and I'm doing everything I need to do. So off I went to get my mammogram and my ultrasound and blood test and all that sort of stuff and came back to him and he said look it's I can't see anything um the the sonographer um the radio friend they can't couldn't see anything so um rather than continuing all these tests I'm going to refer you to a breast surgeon um and you know the the surgeon that he referred me to had a really great reputation she was at um, the hospital just up the road from my house so I was like okay and I asked him at that time do I need to be any more than 3% worried? And he said, at this stage, we're running with 3%. That's, we don't have any more information than we had before, but this isn't my area. So I think you need to talk to someone who is a specialist and she will take one look and know what direction it's going to go in. So, and I'm really thankful for that because I've heard a lot of stories where the GP hasn't referred on um, or maybe they've got a different um, specialist. So I'm really lucky that my GP was um, was really quick to refer me, quick to get all the tests. Um, so, yeah, so then on I went to meet Chantel um, and she <laughs> is fabulous. Uh, she's the most... I don't know what I was expecting when I was going to see 
um, a breast cancer surgeon, but it certainly wasn't Chantelle. She was, you know, pink scrubs and she's with her lipstick on and she was so fabulous and so forthright and she just really understood me and she said, okay, I think I know what this is. Um, I think you uh, have breast cancer, but I think it's, it might, based on what I can see, it might be the early stages. So the cells um, before they get to, to the scary part. So I, we'll do some biopsies and, and we'll work through it. Um, and, you know, you're in safe hands. You're all good. Uh, so we did the biopsies and it was increasingly difficult to find the cells because the cells are microscopic and it's a needle that's trying to find them. So I had, I think they had four, uh, there were four occurrences where I'd gone in for a biopsy and I had probably three or four each time. Um, and they were so invasive and it was it was incredible. The, that biopsy phase, I think, was probably the hardest um, because I didn't know what to expect. The environment uh, of that area of the hospital um, is very clinical, uh, very cold. I remember any time that they'd offer me a blanket, they had it in that one of those blanket warmers. I'd, I'd you know, grab the chance to have one. So I always remember feeling terribly cold and um, and always hungry and thirsty, I think, because I was sort of um, deprived of, you know, the choice to, you know, pop out and get a coffee because I'm sitting in there in the hospital gown going from one room to the other. And I think probably my second or third time I knew all the nurses and I'd used all the machines that they had <laughs> in that particular department. Um, and after my fourth round of biopsies that they had done of um, both breasts um, and under my arm, um, axilla it's called, sort of in your armpit, uh, their results went straight to Chantel um, really quickly and uh, she called me in and she said, look, you've got, we haven't been able to get the cells from the tumours themselves, um, but I've got enough evidence to say that we need to surgically intervene. So we're going to do a mastectomy on your left side. Um, and she said, we might have to go up to the axilla as well and remove some lymph nodes because we think we can see that it has spread. Uh, at that stage, she had told me that was the appointment that the breast care nurse came out to get me and that's when I knew. I knew straight away um, that I'd been assigned a breast care nurse, which means that I was going to be on a breast cancer journey. Um, my boyfriend had no idea at the time, so he was coming into the appointment and I was like, oh, no, there's this nurse here, this is bad. And he's like, what do you mean? Who's that? How do you know her? And I was like, well, you just you just wait. So we went in and we had the, um, we heard the news and she, she said, you've got metastatic breast cancer, which means that it's spread essentially. Um, so she was explaining where, um, based on the scans, where it was um, and what the surgical plan would be. And it's really interesting revisiting that conversation because I probably feel the same about it now as I felt then. I 
was really keen to soak up as much information as I possibly could. I was very much in problem-solving mode. I was presented with an issue. Let's let's figure out, okay, what surgery do, you need, do we need? Do we need chemo? Do we need radiation? Let's just get it all done. Um, and Chantel was very good in understanding that that was my process. So she gave me all of the information. When I was diagnosed uh, and we had our plan and um, all my referrals were organised, as I was walking out the door, Chantel said to me, you're not going to die from this. I don't know if they're allowed to say that, (laughs) but um, that was enough for me. That was, I was sort of like, okay, well, right, we've got to, we've got to do all, all these, all these things. I've got to have this surgery. I'll have this treatment, but I won't be dead. So it's all worth it. So all of a sudden, what was so unknown after all of those biopsies and tests and waiting and needles, I knew that whatever was about to come next, there was a full stop um, in that I would be treated and then I would be well again. And I think that's exactly what I needed. And that's, that's again, about that bedside manner and that understanding when I spoke when I spoke to my specialists they were talking to me as a person and Chantel knew in that moment that I needed to hear that um and then you know straight from patient back to person and that was really important to me she referred me to a plastic surgeon who I'd have to go to to talk through reconstruction and that actually really surprised me because I just assumed that by having a mastectomy that they would just essentially chop off the breast and I'd have one of those um, ugly scars that you see. Um, you quite often see those really shocking images of women with mastectomies and um, I probably shouldn't say ugly scars. Um, it's just a different scar to what I have and um, some women are very proud of that and um, have chosen not to have an instant reconstruction um, but I I chose to have reconstructions and then I had a really good plastic surgeon. Um, but I was also referred to see uh, a fertility specialist um, and that part probably took me by surprise. I hadn't thought about having kids um, at 32. Maybe I should have, but that's probably the point that I would have started to consider. Um, but I'd, I'd just moved in with my boyfriend um, literally two or three days earlier. Um, but which was a really interesting time to move house and be diagnosed with breast cancer and see a fertility specialist all in the one all in the one week. Um, but the fertility stuff really really took me by surprise because I was very I was in the okay well we've got the cancer diagnosis so we need to like get on board with getting the mastectomy and then we'll do the chemo and stuff and if I can't have kids I can't have kids that's fine whatever let's just you know get on get on with it um, and sort this cancer business out. Um, looking back, I'm really grateful that I was referred to the fertility specialist. Um, at the time, I was so annoyed by it. Um, at least now I have a choice. Um, but had I gone down the path that I, my problem solving, let's just get it all sorted, um, then I, would, I wouldn't um, because the chemo can affect your ability to 
um, produce eggs. It can it can affect everything basically. So um, I had my mastectomy um, a week after I was diagnosed and um, commenced fertility drugs the day after my operation. Uh, and that that process is intense um, in isolation. I can't imagine going through that IVF process um, and desperately wanting to have a child um, and having to have those injections day in and day out. It's I had to have, I think, three in the morning and four in the afternoon um, at set times and I only had two weeks of the um, the drugs. Uh, they removed 10 eggs and froze eight, um, which is good. The fertility doctor, uh, she wanted to go again. She wanted to get more. She the more eggs, the better. Um, she was aiming for 24 and I think she was pretty disappointed that I could only um, give her 10 and then freeze eight. But I figure you only need one. Um, and I wasn't going to delay chemo to get more eggs because the eggs probably wouldn't be any good if my treatment was delayed um, and the cancer spread. So um I was, yeah, I was happy with, with that. For many women, our breasts are a physical manifestation of our womanhood. They are also, of course, a life source. Should we choose to, or if we can breastfeed? For Terrell, choosing to have her breast reconstructed during her surgery meant waking up to a breast that felt similar to the one that she'd come to know so intimately over the last three decades. So after I was diagnosed, um, I the treatment plan was to have a mastectomy. Uh, we found from the pathology report that I actually had three tumours in my breast uh, and one just behind my nipple, which was causing um, the discharge, uh, a really rare tumour um, called Paget's disease. So had I ha- not had that tumour, we wouldn't have known until um, it had metastasized further. Uh, so because of where that um, rare tumour was, my nipple was going to have to be removed. So in consultation with my plastic surgeon, we chatted through all of the different options um, we, about what reconstruction could look like. Um, all of the different options for nipples, which was a really interesting conversation. Um, You can actually get prosthetic nipples. Um, They come in a range of colours. He showed us all of them. Um, He spoke about cosmetic tattooing. um, And I wasn't terribly worried about losing a nipple. Um, Even saying nipple still is just such an odd thing to say so often. Um, yeah, I, I I suppose what we learned from the plastic surgeon was you I, until I get in there, I don't know what um, what we're going to have to do. Um, so I've got a fair idea, but Chantelle will go in and remove all of the breast tissue, um, and, and that's everything. So essentially, because I was having a reconstruction, the skin would remain, but all of the tissue would would go, including nerve endings. So 
um, I wouldn't have any feeling there or um, under my arm where the lymph nodes would be removed. Um, so I got marked up the day, um, the night before my surgery, and I was so annoyed because I had texture all over my chest from my collarbone sort of right down to my ribs. And it's hilarious to think back at the time, but I was furious because I wanted to have a last supper with me and my boobs and my boyfriend. Um, and I had this outfit all planned and then I had all this texture all over my chest so I couldn't wear it. And I was fuming um, and my boyfriend told me to calm down because I was about to have surgery to remove cancer and that the outfit that I was planning to wear for dinner probably wasn't super important, which in hindsight he is right. Um, yeah, so I I didn't really know what it was going to look like coming out. I knew I would have something. Um, there would be a breast-shaped um, lump there, um, but I just didn't know what a reconstruction would look like. Um, and they can take, depending on how much skin they have to take, they can, some people they take your back, sometimes they take your stomach, um, depending on how much fat you've got. There's all sorts of, I think there's about um, seven different ways they can reconstruct the breast. So um, that was a learning curve as well. That was something I had no idea about. But again, he knew I wanted all of the information, so he, he gave it to me. Um, and then going in for the surgery, I've, I didn't really feel anything. I've sort of, you know, I've had surgical procedures before and sort of felt like, okay, well, they'll give me the anaesthetic and they'll cut into me and then I'll have recovery. And, um, yeah, I, f I didn't feel nothing, but I didn't feel anything. Like I wasn't feeling numb. I think I had all of the information and Chantel had told me I wasn't going to die and that I would keep revisiting that. Um, and I think until that actually happened, it until the surgery actually happened, it wasn't really real. And it had been a lot of talk and a lot of tests, but until, you know, they actually had cut into me, it wasn't it wasn't really a reality for me yet, I don't think. Um, so the surgery took four and a half hours. Um, and on waking up, I um, badgered the recovery nurse to get my boyfriend in there. I was just so worried he wouldn't be able to get into the hospital because of how late it was, which is quite a ridiculous first thought. That was my first thought. Like, I've got to get him in. He's got to check it out. Um, and he ended, he ended up getting in. The recovery nurse was so annoyed with me. He said, don't ask me one more time. I think I was so out of it. He's like, I've, I've got it under control. Um, and I remember being wheeled into the room and, I had um, compression bandage on my chest, so I couldn't see anything for a number of days, but they ended up doing um, what they call a skin-sparing mastectomy. So they'd removed um, a the nipple itself and a portion um, of the areola, but most of the skin was intact. So what they'd done is they'd put in an expander, which is like a... Um, sort of like an implant, but it has um, a little toggle that you can fill up with saline to stretch the skin over time so it would meet the same size as my other breast. Um, 
But in looking down at my chest, um, I didn't really know much difference. It was it was just like a breast-shaped lump. So for me, I was sort of like, okay, well, I guess we're good to go. It was from that perspective, I was really surprised that I wasn't upset. Like from a femininity point of view, I have never felt like I have been less of a woman at all. I've I've always had something there. Um, I've definitely been frustrated when I've been trying to dress and things like that. But um, I think that the new boob looks better than the old boob, to be honest. <laughs> it's a lot higher and firmer. Um, but, yeah, in from uh, what it looked like, it 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 didn't it didn't phase me at all I the thing that I really struggled with from a recovery point of view is that my mind was ready to go ready for the next phase um and my body wasn't and that's probably been a huge theme throughout um recovery and treatment is that my mind has been just wanting to kick back into you know being being the old me um but you I suppose this is this is me and I have to sort of look after myself I I remember asking the nurse what all right what do I need to do to get out of here um the day after my surgery and she said you need to go for a walk um have a shower and use the bathroom and then you can then you can go so I did all of that in the first day and said okay well I guess it's goodbye and she said no no <laughs> no you won't be doing that so I so I stayed for for three days and um I suppose the other the other reason I was keen to get out of there is that my health insurance didn't cover it so I just wanted to spend as little money as possible um but so I stayed the the three days and um uh, I hated it. I hated being in that hospital. I had a, um, I had was in a room by myself, and I had a, you know, balcony, and um, it was warm, um, and everyone that was coming to visit me was, you know, in shorts and a t-shirt, and I was literally strapped to the bed. I couldn't move my left side um, where they'd taken the breast. I couldn't move my right arm because the cannula was in it. I couldn't move my legs um, because I was strapped into. Um, this machine that stimulates blood flow because I'd been under anaesthetic for so long. So I was literally like tied to the bed Um, and I was looking at videos uh, last night um, that reminded me that uh, I couldn't even really bend my arms to, you know, put my hair up or um, eat breakfast and so my boyfriend would do that for me and he had a little bit too much fun. I've got videos of him um, doing the aeroplane to, to spoon feed me breakfast and the way he struggled to um, put my hair up in a ponytail um, and things that you take for granted that thankfully once I got the use of my arms back, I took back control of, you know, putting hair up and eating breakfast and thing and things like that. But, um, but yeah, I think that that was probably in terms of how I dealt with things from there on out whilst I was frustrated and keen to you know get to the next step and then finish it and get back to real life um we laughed 
a lot. We made lots of jokes, um, yeah, and still do actually, because I think if you don't if you don't laugh, you cry, and I I still think it's okay to cry, and there's been crying, that's for sure. But I think that yeah, that really set the tone for for how we would deal with the next phase, and I say we because up until that point it was just me because I was being tested and cut and examined um, and he was along the journey with me and, and my sister as well. Um, but, yeah, from, from that point on after the operation, it was very much a team effort because you just don't, you really underestimate the importance of that support network. Um, yeah, it makes a huge, huge difference to your recovery We've found ourselves making uh, a lot of jokes together. I have absolutely been making a lot of jokes when I tell my story, which I know that I've already done. Uh, it is definitely a coping mechanism. Um, I, I'm nat- I naturally would make jokes about something if I felt uncomfortable and to cut the tension um, and it's not, um I'm not trying to minimize my experience um I think whenever I talk about it I try and make the people that I'm talking to feel more comfortable because nobody knows what to say um people have said some really interesting things to me um it's it's difficult I can understand that you want to try and relate um, and and make me feel more comfortable about my experience. Um, but I've had people say, well, it's, I suppose, going through chemo sort of like pregnancy. I mean, I've never been pregnant. Um, I hope it's not for all the pregnant gals out there. Um, you know, you're nauseous, um, I suppose. That's similar. But, you know, people people just don't know what to say. So I think there's a lot there's a lot of that in why I make jokes. Um, it's not just about them. It's also about about me. And and I think the reason I bring that up is because I, it's okay to be happy when something bad is happening, just in the same way that it's okay to be sad when something good is happening. It's that's you know everyone deals with things differently, but this is the way that I've chosen to deal with it. And um, yeah. I wouldn't have it any other way. I don't think I'd be okay just being very serious about cancer and popping it in a box. I think it bleeds into my daily life um, and will do forever because I will always have had cancer. I hope I don't have it again. Um, But if I'm not talking about it, um, then people aren't seeing a different face of cancer and um, I think that's important. The best thing you can say to someone who is going through cancer um from my experience is can I do anything um you know I'm I'm sorry I'm here for you if you need me can I do anything um you can't compare it um to anything unless you've had that same experience but I suppose that that goes with with anything I suppose um and depend i think it's also about understanding because there's lots of different phases there have been there've been times when i've been really angry 
um, and really irritated at people. Um, there have been times when I've just felt really emotional. Um, but I suppose the thing of it is, you know, you know that your issue is going to be divisive and you can see it in the reflection on people's faces. Um, so, you, yeah, you, you know that um, it's making people uncomfortable. So the best thing you can really do is to try and remove that uncomfortability and just offer your support in whatever way that is. Um, but there's no right or wrong way because everyone will go through that journey really differently. Um, it's grief, I suppose. It's your, your grieving, you know, whether it's the loss of a breast or the loss of your freedom. Um, yeah, it's just how you, you would manage grief generally. Um, and don't buy flowers. <laughs> I had so many flowers and they die, which is so annoying. And we've just moved into our place and had no surfaces to put them on. Um, yes, don't, don't buy flowers. That would be my, my big tip. Um, flowers are great, but you know, someone needs to coordinate the gifts. So there's only one bunch. So I was really anxious about chemo um, because I wanted all of the information um, and they, they do give you all of the information. I was, um, my cancer was hormone positive uh, so um, and based on the kinds of tumours that I had, um, I was prescribed a chemo called FECD. Everyone has different drugs. Um, because there are so many different kinds of breast cancer. At the time that I was diagnosed, I think there were 20. There might be more. Um, and, you know, it, it differs on how you react to uh, treatment depending on your age, your fitness level, um, if you're male or female, men get breast cancer too. Um, yeah, there's a huge range of factors, you know, genetic makeup, all of that sort of stuff. So um, my treatment was I had six rounds each three weeks apart um I had treatment on a Thursday because I wanted to be organized um enough to be able to go back take the least amount of time off work and go back to work so I have them on a Thursday so I'd have Friday off um and I ended up taking the Monday and then be back in at work on on the Tuesday um because that was my choice. People thought I was a bit mad doing that, but I had to continue to live my life through treatment and that's why I was so anxious to, to know what, how it was going to affect me and how could I plan for it um, to make sure that I could still live my life and continue to be that person rather than a patient sitting at home. Uh, so the first three rounds of my treatment were the FEC drug, um, which is three different drugs, each starting with FEC, long names, I can't remember them and I don't need to. And then the last three treatments were um, the drug starting with D, um, which was a bit softer than the um, first three treatments. So uh, breast cancer and the treatment for it from a chemo perspective um, is is one of the biggest ones where you lose your hair um, because there's hormones involved and the kinds of drugs that they use. Um, 
I, I had great hair. I had really good hair. I loved my hair. It was like my thing. Um, and I didn't want to lose it. Uh, so you can um, wear a cooling cap to, to keep your hair. So that was definitely um, in my plan. Uh, and it affects the length of your treatment as well. So essentially the cooling cap is... Uh, like a swimming cap kind of thing that you have a strap under your chin. It's extremely tight, um, kind of smushes your face together. So it doesn't, the, all the photos that I have, I look more unwell with the cooling cap on than I um, did without it. Uh, so basically it uh, freezes your head so that um, the blood flow containing the chemo drugs doesn't, um get to your hair that's how I understand it anyway I'm not a doctor or an expert at um you know scalp refrigeration but that's how I understand it uh but it adds time to your treatment so you have to go in an hour to an hour and a half prior to your treatment uh and then you wear it throughout your treatment which uh is an hour to an hour and a half and then you wear it for an hour after your treatment uh, and I decided to, to do it. I um, was aware of the side effects of the cap that doesn't always work. Um, I was aware of the side effects I was going into with the drugs that were varied. You can lose your appetite, you can be nauseous, you can bloat, you can lose sensitivity in your fingers, you can burn, you can... I mean, anything. They have strong, strong drugs. So basically they give you this big list. And so I would work through the list and go, okay, so how am I going to, if I, if I put on weight really, really suddenly, how am I going to deal with that? So I went out and bought these big kind of like moo-moos to sort of, all right, I'll be able to go to works because so I've got that all sorted. And how am I going to account for taste? So I researched, you know, all of the nutrient-rich things that you can have that will support um, so I, I worked through the list to try and offset everything to go in and be a control freak and be like, oh, guys, don't worry, I've got this covered. Um, but I was so naive. Um, it, the first chemo was awful. It was terrible. I had to get a port put in my arm, um, because I had a lymph node clearance, so all of my lymph nodes on my left side were removed, I can't have any needles in my left arm. Um, and um, if I was to have it injected, the chemo injected intravenously um, in my right arm, it can cause, it's very painful. Um, so the best way to do it is to put this port in, which is basically um, like a line up to your um, main artery. And then the drugs just go straight in. Um, so I had to get that port put in in the morning. So I had to fast and I was so hangry. I was convinced because I'd done all my research um, about losing your appetite, I thought I would never eat again. <laughs> um, never, I'll never enjoy food again. And how can you possibly ask me to, you know, withhold from my last breakfast? Um, so I put got the port put in um, and then they wanted me to stay uh, in there for recovery and I was probably incredibly rude but I was just so anxious 
uh, I said, no, I've got chemo. I don't think you understand. I, um, I've got cancer and I need that. I was so, so rude. And they're like, yeah, well, we know because we just put your port in. Obviously, you've got cancer. So um, it was a it was a terrible experience because I was so anxious and overwhelmed. It wasn't it wasn't how it went in my head. Um, I was back in that radiology department where I was cold and again didn't have my snacks or didn't have water, and I, I my choices were gone. Um, and that's something that the the operation didn't hinder me from having a choice. I could still do things, but all of a sudden this this chemo train, um, I was back in the system again. I was back to being a patient and it took me back to that place of, you know, being shuttled around from room to room. Um, so that the start to chemo, yeah, I, I felt really uncomfortable. I had a headache. I, I felt awful and I was I knew I was about to feel worse. Uh, so they took me up to the oncology day ward and um, they put me in the chair and they were about to start and I said I hadn't eaten anything by that point and I think this was like 1 o'clock maybe and I... Had re- I had realised throughout the journey that whilst doctors and nurses and specialists are providing you with their recommendations, it's your journey and you still should have choices. Um, and in the same way that if you weren't happy with the service you were getting at a restaurant or at a hairdresser, you would say something or um, not go ahead with it unless you were comfortable. So I said to the nurse, no chemo until we get some food that's it's not this is not okay um and they were great they were really understanding um there's no question about the level of care with any parts of my treatment but you lose your voice at times um and that's what I really struggled with and I knew what was to come so I had those salad sandwiches and they were awful, but <laughs> I ate them. Um, I ate two rounds of them actually. He, he ordered me two because he said, I thought you were on edge. And I said, I was, yes, I needed them. Uh, and then they popped the cooling cap on and I thought, that's not so bad. you got to wet your hair, put some conditioner on, put this really tight cap on. Um, they clip it up to the machine and you sit there for an hour. Um, you can go to the toilet. I was really worried about not being able to go to the toilet because I was plugged into the refrigerator, but you can. Uh, but, yeah, the, it cooled your head and then the, the drugs started and the drugs going in was fine. The, the being there was fine because it's all controlled you're in the hospital. You've got natural light. They'll, they bring in meals, which you really don't feel like. Couldn't eat anything in the cooling cap anyway because the strap was so tight. Um, and I fell asleep because, I don't know, the sound of the drugs like whirring through the machine was so, I don't know, relaxing. And um, they do give you a sedative as well with the cooling cap because it can hurt. So, um, yeah, I felt, I felt fine. And when I was there, um, 
I did expect it to be like on Sex and the City when Samantha goes through chemo and they all bring in icy poles. It wasn't like that at all. Um, but it was better. The environment was better than I expected. The, the light was really important. There's a balcony um, out the front. Um, and, yeah, I, it was much better being there once I'd had the port put in. Um, I, yeah, I fell asleep and, um, you know, back to the jokes that um, we would make, my boyfriend took a selfie um, with me asleep and I, I look I look like I'm dying. <laughs> it's probably the worst photo I've ever seen, but it's hilarious. So um, every I invited a lot of um, friends, um, family, colleagues to come and participate in chemo with me to educate them about it. Um, so every group of people that came with me, we reenacted that same photo of me passed out in the chair and them having like an unimpressed face of like, nah, it's good to catch up, you know, you've just passed out. So that was, that was um, an important part of the journey that I, I only realised after that first chemo. Um, when I came home from the first session, I felt incredibly nauseous. It, it, like I couldn't, I couldn't, the idea of food, it's really difficult to imagine now but there's, there's a disconnect and, and it was straight away. It, I was exhausted, um, I was nauseous, but also looking at food, it didn't, it didn't stimulate any kind of appetite. It didn't look appealing. It was really, it was, that was really jarring for me, even though I'd done all the research. Um, so I, you know, sort of went, took anti-nausea drugs, which they give you and went to bed early and, um, I felt okay the next day, which was probably not great because I went for a walk and thought we'd go shopping and, you know, try tried to do too much um, and it made me realise that I, I can't do that anymore. I'm undergoing cancer treatment and I have to readjust how I approach things. Um, the food, though, was the worst. So I would we did this thing called chemo cafe so we'd go out for breakfast the day after chemo to try and create something a nice memory to align with something that was not so great um and i could never eat ever i would order it was really not a great idea from sort of an expense point of view because i'd order this big breakfast and i couldn't eat it um but it was about having control and choice. If I could eat it, I had the option to. So we would go for a walk and um, go out for to chemo cafe, which was different. We probably went to every cafe around Melbourne. And, um, yeah, but I just couldn't eat and it was so flattening. The connection and from a social perspective as well, I just thought, well, what, what am I going to, how do I we hang out with people now? Like I can't, I can't go out for drinks. I can't, you know, I can't. I just not getting any enjoyment out of it. And um, I, my boyfriend took it upon himself to solve the problem. He was like, okay. And it was a it was November. I had chemo, so I started in November. And we were out on the balcony. It was a beautiful day. So he made um, 
Aperol spritzes and this like beautiful cheese plate with Daffy Noir and like all of these, you know, amazing things. And he was like, all right, we're going to get you back. And God, it broke my heart to eat that cheese and taste nothing and feel nothing. And I just thought I was, yeah, that was a real low point. It sounds, you know, on reflection, it sounds so ridiculous given everything else that was going on. But it was really representative of, you know, going into summer and all of the things that I would normally have been doing, just sort of living my life and, you know, hanging out with friends and eating. Um, but I couldn't, I couldn't do that. And that's, that was the real challenge. So um, day four is always the hardest um, from what people say. And it was true for me too. Uh, I felt really down. I felt like depressed, crying. Um, and then on day five, I felt a bit better and day six and, you know, the, so the cycle began. And so once I realised that I had a pattern, I felt a little bit comforted and I wrote myself a letter that I haven't read, um, not recently, but I, I wrote myself a letter in preparation for session two and just really told myself off, just told myself that I reminded myself what I was going through and that it was okay to say, no, I'm not going to do things. It was okay to feel weak and sick because I was. With Terrell's permission, I'm going to read the letter she wrote to herself. Our hope is that by sharing her personal correspondence, it might help someone else who is preparing to step onto the cancer battlefield. Hello, it's me. Chemo is hard. I know you think you can handle anything, and of course you can. You did a great job with the mastectomy, I hope it still looks as good as it does right now. But you need to listen to my advice. I know I'm the only one you'll listen to. It's okay to feel weak. It's okay not to feel as strong as you know you are. You aren't going mad. You're still you and everything will start to feel better. It will all be okay sooner than you think. I've got a plan and we love a good plan. Just trust me and you'll feel as strong as you are in no time. This isn't the time to be a hero. Not all the side effects will happen to you. I asked the doctor and he said they had to make a list of everything that's ever happened to anyone. They won't all happen to you. You will feel sick and tired. You'll lose your taste and the feeling in your tongue and your memory. You'll feel like your body let you down and it will take you a while to forgive yourself for something that was never your fault. Don't be hard on yourself. Be kind to yourself. There's a few times when you get a bit angry and honestly, pretty rude. Don't overdo it. You should not have walked to Mecca that day in the heat and told off the shop assistant. Karma made you buy that $400 candle, which you love, but you never light. You'll lose your hair And it's such good hair too. But you'll love shaving it off. It looks rad and people will call you G.I. Jane and you'll love every moment. No cooling cat will halve your time in chemo. But they won't give you the sedative, which made chemo way more fun. But you'll invite your friends to chemo and God, that's important. 
those are your people and exactly who you need around you. You are really lucky. Tell them that. Cry. That hits you about day three or four. You've got no idea why you're crying, but do it anyway. I promise you aren't going mad. It goes away as quick as it comes, but it will happen like clockwork. Be open, share your story and your feelings. This helps you so much and the people around you. Sleep and meditate. That, along with exercise and buckets of water, will help you recover. Don't go anywhere if you haven't had eight hours sleep. You'll be an asshole. It's not worth it. Say no to things. And not just through treatment. Always. You don't have to be all things to all people. Ask for help. You aren't alone and people want to do something. Compliments are important. Receiving them will bore you in ways you never imagined. Give more compliments. Your eyelashes and eyebrows will fall out and that will be devastating, but you'll become a winged eyeliner expert, which is something you really should improve anyway. On that, eyebrow tattooing hurts a lot, but it's worth every moment and an amazing woman will gift them to you. They are perfect and will mean that the overplucked brows of your teens will never return. You'll look completely different, but you will feel the most confident you ever have. People will look at you and maybe it's because you look sick, but maybe it's because you look like G.I. Jane, so you smile at them anyway. Work is a godsend. You forget a few things, but people are kind and help so much. These people are irreplaceable. Do something nice for them when you come out the other side. And you do, just so you know. And you are fabulous. You're killing it at the gym and building up your strength. Rest when you have to, but don't give up. You have an amazing team of cheerleaders around you. Gouldie is incredible. Incredible. He's a massive fan of the shaved head. He'll never tell you this, but it's really hard on him. And finally, you're not only going to be okay, you're going to be amazing. You are so fucking strong. Use that. Thank you, Terrell, for allowing me to read your letter to self. Two weeks into chemo, she got a group together to participate in the Breast Cancer Network Australia's charity fun run. They raised some money, but that day is significant to Terrell for another reason entirely. I remember that the morning I was getting ready to go to this run, my head felt, my scalp felt like tight as if I'd had my hair up um, in a tight ponytail all night. Um, so I, I didn't put it up because I, I knew then that it was going to go. It, it just didn't feel right. Um, and that was day 17 and that's the day that they tell you that your hair will fall out. Uh, so I did the walk um, and, God, it was so windy. I was so nervous that it was just going to start flying out. It didn't, um, but, geez, it, it could have. Um, and when I got home, um, a bit of hair came out um, and I was pretty shocked by it. Um, it was a real it was a real disconnected moment because that's not meant to happen, even though I knew it could. Um, it just didn't feel like reality. And 
then more hair started coming out. Um, sometimes in meetings at work, my hair would come out and it was like big chunks. Um, yeah, it was a hard decision to go into my second session knowing that I basically had no hair. It like it was still there. It was very thin, particularly on top, and it would coat the carpet. It was it was so annoying, to be honest. It like I'd have a shower and it, it would be sticking to me when I got out of the shower. It was oh, it was horrendous because it was again just that lack of control. So I decided to have the second chemo session with the cooling cap, and that was excruciating. Um, because the, where there was hair protecting my scalp before, in some spots there weren't. So it was basically freezing my skin. Um, and it, yeah, it hurt and I had a headache. They gave me the sedative, which at the time I just felt didn't, didn't do anything. I remember Lyndall trying to talk me through um, that first sort of 20 minutes, which is the worst. Um, of that of the cooling cap and I couldn't even speak to her I was just had to really like buckle down and be in the zone because it was so cold and painful um and that's when I decided I wasn't going to do the cooling cap again and I I wanted to shave my head um and when I did I felt so good it was so empowering. I didn't, it wasn't about what I looked like. It was just about taking control back. And I looked at a photo actually last night um, of that moment and I was smiling. Like I was thrilled to be able to do it. And it looked really good. It actually looked great. Um, and I remember walking out of the hairdresser thinking, oh, my God, everyone's going to be looking at me. And I don't think anyone was because it just, my hair at that stage, you could still see that I had some. So it didn't look, just look like I'd shaved my head. And I just, I kind of felt normal, um, whatever that means. But, yeah, oh, I just had this trendy new haircut. And um, then I went a little bit mad and started buying all these accessories and like playing up to the fact that this was my new uh, persona. And um, yeah, I loved it. I, I didn't feel weird about it at all. It was all of a sudden my vulnerability was on show and that made me feel more confident. Uh, and at that point in time, I probably looked very healthy um, and then the sessions following where I started to lose my eyebrows and my eyelashes um, and started to lose more weight um, and lose more hair, I definitely looked sicker. Um, but I don't know, I was sort of owning it in the same way that, you know, some women own their mastectomy scars and they like to put them on show. I was really owning how I felt and um, what I looked like. Um, and it was a really interesting process to, to look sick. And I tried my hardest not to look sick. Like the amount of fake tan, I should be a Bondi Sands ambassador. I swear the amount of fake tan and like all over, like I would put it on my scalp as well. Um, it was, yes, 
I mean, it probably made me feel better. I don't think it made me look less sick. Um, but, yeah, the hats and accessories and crazy outfits that I wore, um, I still looked sick but I felt good doing it. Uh, but you can see your reflection in um, other people's faces at times and the level of uncomfortability and trying to figure out are you sick or uh, do you just look like this or what's really wrong with you? Um, and I learned a lot from that. I knew my hair was going to grow back, but I can only imagine if you had a permanent physical disability how that must feel. Um, I would hope that um, someone in that position would feel that same level of confidence from vulnerability that I felt, but it's that's that was a big learning curve for me um and I I continued to work I didn't wear a wig um I tried a lot of wigs on I had a lot of fun trying wigs on I bought a couple of wigs um but they make me feel more they make me feel uncomfortable because I feel like I'm hiding who I am and what I'm going through um and I was really open at work um about what I was struggling with I would work were really good, um, you know, had flexible hours and if I couldn't do it, I wouldn't do it um, and everyone around me was super supportive and um, I'd have big chats with lots of people and cancer affects so many people. It, people just come up to me. One person actually said, i got to ask, is this just a haircut or what's happening? And Which was great because I was happy to talk about it and I did and, um it was almost, a, you know, therapy for me to be able to show who I am and what I'm going through. Um, and slowly my hair is coming back. I did think it would be um, back a lot quicker than it has come back, but um, I do have, I'm having a haircut today. Um, <laughs> I have an excellent hairdresser who um, we've got a plan. We've got a plan for it to come back in. But the yeah the whole shaving of my head um was the best part of my chemo treatment because I had control I couldn't control anything else um but I had control of that and um it also meant that my the remaining sessions were shorter because I would just go in for an hour and then I'd be done and um it was funny looking back at those photos of all of the sessions about uh, how my hair had progressively um, fallen out and what how different I looked each time. Um, but in each photo, I almost look happier the further on I am. And I would I would wear um, outfits to go to chemo, and I would orchestrate a um, photo after each session because I wanted to own it I wanted to again create that positive out of the negative I didn't you know what you put on Instagram isn't necessarily the complete reality it's it's curated for sure like I'm I wasn't putting the photos of me um where I felt and looked like shit um I was putting a positive spin on it but I felt that was really important to show people a different face you know I'm not a 65 year old overweight lady that's um, got breast cancer um, 
I'm not, you know, I'm a mother with young children that's got breast cancer because they're the, the stories that you quite often hear. Um, I'm a working professional who wants to look good having chemo and um, that was that was who I wanted to present to the world. After I finished chemo, I started radiation. Uh, there was a three-week break in between, uh, which I was thrilled about. I wanted to just not be a patient for a little bit. Um, it was actually my birthday, so I had a 33 and chemo-free party, um, which is was really fun. Um, and then the day after my birthday, I started um, radiation. So that's basically like an X-ray type machine, but with a laser that goes over your um, affected area for I think it's up to ten minutes. So it's really short treatment happened every day for three weeks. Um, I found that part really irritating. I didn't it didn't hurt um, from a time perspective it was just terribly inconvenient so I um, took two weeks off work which in hindsight I probably needed to do um, I had many conversations with the people um, in the cancer center about trying to schedule a um, work appropriate time for my radiation and they just could not compute um, and looking back work probably shouldn't have been my priority I was hell-bent on having a uh, a normal life um, so taking those two weeks off was really important to listen to my body to rest because um, radiation can really zap you can make you feel terribly exhausted but I was extremely lucky there was a huge list of side effects that I'd gone through uh, in the same way that um, there was with chemo and I didn't have any of them really I'm really lucky I didn't have um, much scarring on my chest um, some people can have something that looks much like a burn uh, and I didn't I didn't really have much of that at all and any redness I did have disappeared so I'd go in every day and walk past um, the bell in reception and there's a sign around it um, saying you've conquered this moment. So this is like the remission bell. Um, not everyone has radiation at the end of their treatment, but, um, you know, this was finally sort of my end date. The 8th of April 2019 was the, the day that I finished uh, radiation and I was going to ring that bell. I would send snapchats to my friends all the time of me in my robe with my terribly inappropriate like I wore leather pants one time and I was sitting there in my robe with stilettos in the waiting room and everyone all these old people around me in wheelchairs it was quite funny and would always like take a photo of the bell and so I'm going to ring that bell so hard and when I finished my final session I came out into the waiting room to ring the bell and my boyfriend was standing there with a bottle of champagne and two uh, plastic champagne glasses that he'd snuck into the hospital and everyone was standing around watching. Um, and I was so overwhelmed. I just thought in my mind that I was going to ring this bell and, like, be so confident and I was just 
I was like, give me that drink. Like I need, I need to need to have that um, glass of champagne to get the the confidence up to stand in front of this room of people. Some people still going through treatment. Some people that worked there and and ring it and and I I rung it and oh god, it was it was such a good feeling. Um, like just to be done, just to just to be done with it all. And all of a sudden, everything from that point on was my choice. Everything that I'd, that whole person versus patient was, that was such a battle that I hadn't even realised that I'd been fighting the whole time. And all of a sudden I walked out and I was this person again. And, you know, I didn't, yeah, I didn't have my hair and, you know, I'd been sick and I have this, I have to have, you know, more operations and all of that stuff. But that's all within, you know, that's part of the way that I'm going to design the rest of my life. And it, it was such a great moment to reflect on the journey as well. It was more than a bell. It was, you know, and that champagne was more than than champagne. It was, we kept the bottle. It's, um yeah, kept the bottle. It was, it was a really special moment for both of us. Um, well, for my whole support team, it was, yeah, it was a, a, a nice way to, put an end to it and and that was the I think that was the point that I was looking forward to from the time that Chantel said you won't die from this that was I knew I was going to get there and I knew I was going to be okay and I finally did and it was yeah it was that was overwhelming but in the best way yeah a final word from Terrell and perhaps as busy ambitious women on our way the biggest lesson for us all You're taking the time to listen to us now and after this episode, we hope you can take a moment to sit and listen to your body. What is it telling you? I've linked information on young women and metastatic breast cancer in the show notes, as well as how to reduce your risk and how to perform a self-examination. And that's, that's the big thing, the whole, your body is not this vehicle that takes you through the world in isolation to your mind and your spirit. In terms of a message, there's a few things. There's, there's the cancer thing um, and the listening, listening to your body. Um, as women, I feel like we, I know I do, try and do everything and try and be everything and try and fast forward and are hard on ourselves when we're not not at the point we thought we were going to be at when, you know, when we reach 30 or, or whatever the goal may be. Um, cancer just made all of that seem just really fucking stupid. It It didn't really matter what my job was. I still got cancer. It didn't matter how much money I earned. I still got cancer. I didn't even have a family history of it. But what I did do is I listened to my body and I was fit and I was healthy and that is more important than that other stuff. I I mean, you know, I still, I'm still on Instagram and I still get stuck in the, you know, scrolling vortex and I still 
consume media in the same way that I used to and I still work at the same job. But I remind myself that the most important thing is being well and being there for the people, you know, people around you that that you love. Like that's, and we all know that and we all get caught up in this, I have to be this, I have to get to this point. You're not your job. I'm not my cancer. You're, who you are is, is who you are. And I think that whole true self that you always talk about on offline, that's, that's why that's resonated with so many people is because that's, that's the real stuff. Um, so my message, I suppose, is listen to your body donate to breast cancer charities because we need to eradicate it donate to every charity do like support causes to stop people going through terrible experiences um like mine could have been i was really lucky but there are some people that aren't and if you've not been touched by disease or um you know heartache or tragedy you're super lucky and you should you should support others that that have I mean whether it's financially or just you know checking yourself checking in on each other I think that's the stuff that that really matters and cancer hasn't made me want to you know run away to the hills and you know become a monk or or whatever I still have the same job that I had before and I'm still ambitious and I still still like money and I still like socializing and I'm still all of those things that I was before, but it's okay to be vulnerable. I think that's that's the thing. It's you don't have to present to be this kind of one side, one dimensional character that's this superwoman. I think that's that's what it's made me realise, and that's what I hope by people listening to my story that you will understand that. Having cancer doesn't mean you're one kind of person. You're not a victim. You're not a patient. You can still be who you were before and you can be better afterwards. Um, so, yeah, I think the whole confidence through vulnerability is something that I've learned from the journey and I hope that people take that from my story because it's okay to cry. It's okay to to be angry and it's okay to be happy you just deal with these situations in in different ways but um yeah I think learning from what's happened before and continuing to evolve because there's no such thing as I'm going to get there because there's never any there for me that's that's what I figured out once I got to the end of um treatment there was this whole life that's still left to live and you know I'm I'm this afternoon I'm going to see my surgeon again to start planning for my next operation and that's my next challenge and then after that I'll have two great new boobs and um, the three of us are going to take on the world. Thank you Terrell for sharing your story with us so we can learn from it please consider donating to the Breast Cancer Network Australia. The website is linked in the show notes. To every angel listening, thank you for supporting me. 
Thank you for supporting Offline as it evolves and develops. I hope you adore all that is to come. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Offline. You can find more episodes at offlinethepodcast.com or by subscribing wherever you like to listen. If Offline helps you, please consider helping me fund these honest conversations. Visit offlinethepodcast.com forward slash donate. Original music by Darren Lake, produced by Podpaste. One last thing. If you know someone who would benefit from hearing these honest conversations, please share offline with them. 